0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokmarkle, and coming up on the program, the life and work of Florida sculptor
1: Charles Adrian Pillars. This bronze statue has been an iconic image of Jacksonville ever since it was first unveiled in 1924.
0: We'll discuss World War II posters in Florida,
2: They were directly communicating to the American people, and it was all about national security and about rationing and about bolstering the the morale, I guess, of Americans back at home.
0: And talk about Gullah Geechee culture. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Untold Story of Charles Adrian Pillars is the new book by Jacksonville historian and author Wayne W. Wood. Life is also the name of Pillars' 20-foot-tall bronze statue that was unveiled in 1924 in Jacksonville to commemorate Florida soldiers who had died in World War I.
1: I got started on this project um, basically by seeing this beautiful statue out in Jacksonville's Memorial Park for virtually all my life since I was five years old. When I first saw it, I was a little bit scared by it. It's this giant winged creature standing on a globe holding a branch of some sort in his hand. And as a little boy, it frightened me. I thought it was a giant of some sort. But as I've grown older and grown to love it, I realized this is without a doubt one of the most beautiful public works of art in the state of Florida. It is a bronze sculpture, 20 feet tall, silhouetted against the St. John's River in a beautiful Olmstead Park, Memorial Park in Riverside section of Jacksonville. And this bronze statue has been an iconic image of Jacksonville ever since it was first unveiled in 1924.
0: While residents of and visitors to Jacksonville are familiar with the work of Charles Adrian Pillars, until Wayne Wood's extensive biography, little was known about the sculptor himself. Wood was inspired by a master's thesis on the life sculpture written by Diane Daywood Taylor. Wood did extensive research that included interviewing Pillars' two daughters who are in their 90s.
1: Pillars uh, was born and grew up in the Midwest in a small town in Illinois. And at an early age, he was shown to exhibit remarkable artistic talent. And uh, when he was about 15 years old, he went to Chicago to apprentice with a noted sculptor there, Laredo Taft. And at about this time, coincidentally, The Great World's Fair of Chicago was underway. They were building the fair and it started in 1893, just when he was uh, engaged in his apprenticeship with Laredo Taft. And the World's Fair was a signal event in American history. Uh, One commentator said it was the second most important event at that time in the United States history after the Civil War because in this World's Fair, artists, sculptors, merchants came from all over the world to be part of this great American World's Fair, which was in some ways a rival to the World's Fair in 1888 in Paris at which the Eiffel Tower was the uh, great landmark. So Chicago had a chip on its shoulder. It was the second city to New York and it wanted to show itself as one of the great cities of the world. So this World's Fair was destined to be a cultural landmark uh, on the American scene. And so they built all these beautiful white palaces around a giant lagoon and all these white palaces required sculpture and that's why the the greatest sculptors in all the world came to chicago and so pillars was there in the midst of this renaissance and the um, era of sculptural art and he met all the great sculptors of the time daniel chester french was his one of his mentors french later went on to design the lincoln memorial in washington dc and august st gaudens and so many of the ones who we now know today as the great uh, sculptors in the pantheon of American artists. So they were all there. Pillars, being a young student apprentice, uh, helped out many of those sculptors, and he got assigned to work with Daniel Chester French to build the giant colossus that was out in the lagoon. If you've ever seen a picture of the 1893 World's Fair, you've surely seen this golden lady of the same scale as the Statue of Liberty, out in the middle of the lagoon. Well, young Charles Pillars got to sculpt the head. It was the largest head ever sculpted in the United States at the time. And so uh, with that under his belt and many of the other sculptors that he helped to design for the fair, uh, he felt like he was destined to be one of the great sculptors in America himself. That winter happened to be the coldest winter in the history of Chicago. It was down below zeros for a day in a row Uh, Was a great impediment for building the World's Fair. They somehow pulled it off. But after the fair was over, Pillars wanted to go someplace warm. And so he he had an uncle in Jacksonville and he said, you know, Florida is a place that's warm. Jacksonville is the largest city in Florida. I think I'll go there and become the greatest sculptor in Florida with you know him being one of the few artists in this uh, newly uh, growing state
0: Pillars moved to Florida to escape the cold weather of Chicago but arrived in Florida just in time for the famous big freeze of 1894-95 Pillars uncle was president of Jacksonville's city council but government leaders at the time didn't show much interest in commissioning art after World War I, Pillars was commissioned to create the huge life
1: sculpture. Wayne Wood. The Rotary Club thought it was important to do a memorial of some sort to those soldiers and service people who died uh, in the World War I, the Great War, as they called it. And so a number of people suggested ideas. And uh, after a lot of confusion and ineptness, the committee that was commissioning the sculpture and designing the park uh, was met with a woman named Nina Cummer, who later went on to become the grand dame of Jacksonville's art and founder of the Cummer Museum of Art and Gardens. But she uh, challenged Pillars to design the greatest work of art he had ever done. And uh, he was part of this commission of people who helped design the park. The park was um, designed by the Olmsted brothers, the most famous landscape architecture firm in the country, the two sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, the father of American landscape architecture. And uh, Ms. Cummer was the one who got them involved. And there was this uh, clash of artistic egos between the Olmstead brothers and Pillars and Ms. Cummer trying to make this the most beautiful park they could. And it eventually came out well, but not without lots of trials and tribulations, which are covered in this book.
0: At the base of the life sculpture, a box was buried that contained a list of the 1,200 Florida soldiers known to have died in World War I. When Hurricane Irma struck in 2017, Jacksonville Memorial Park was flooded and the list of names was waterlogged. Fortunately, archaeologists were able to uncover and save the document.
1: When Hurricane Irma came a couple of years ago, it not only destroyed some of the plants, but it also destroyed some of the beautiful concrete balustrade that goes over 200 feet across the front of the park, fronting on the river. And uh, fortunately, the great statue, which the name of the statue is life. And fortunately, life statue was not hurt, but there are wonderful and amazing photographs and videos of rolling waves coming off of the river, far towering over the balustrade and crashing onto the statue. And fortunately, uh, the salt water did not do any lasting damage to the great bronze statue itself.
0: Video of the preservation of the World War I scroll can be seen in the Florida Frontiers television episode, World War I in Florida, which is archived online at myfloridahistory.org. When Charles Adrian Pillars first came to Florida, he mainly created portrait busts and medallions for prominent people. Eventually, Pillars received a commission to create a statue that still stands in the United States Capitol building. Author Wayne Wood.
1: Finally, in 1912, he landed one of the most significant commissions of his career, and that was to place a statue of a Florida hero in the statuary hall in the Capitol in Washington, DC. Every state was allowed to have two of their heroes commemorated uh, in statuary in this great hall of American heroes. And so the first one that Florida chose was Dr. John Gorey, the inventor of the ice making machine, uh, which uh, later on went on to the development of air conditioning without which Florida would not exist as we know it today. So he was a great hero at the time and there was a very intense competition to get the commission to do this first sculpture and Pillars won it. And he did a seven or eight foot tall marble statue, Carrera marble uh, that is still in the Capitol in Washington DC today. After that, it came time to choose the second hero from Florida, and the legislature chose General Kirby Smith, the famous Confederate War hero, and um, Pillars again, vied for that. The competition was intense, and he eventually won that. So now he had the commission for two great sculptures to go in the Capitol. However, uh, even after he finished the General Kirby Smith statue, got installed in the Capitol, but they never dedicated it because there was controversy from Northern legislators that they should not be commemorating Confederate heroes. And so it remained in the Capitol, undedicated, for almost five years. And finally, in 1922, without any ceremony in particular, it was officially declared a statue in Statuary Hall. So those were Pillars' two big works that he did. And that led, in turn, in 1924 to the Statue of Life being unveiled in Memorial Park.
0: In the book Life, the Untold Story of Charles Adrian Pillars, historian Wayne Wood tells many interesting stories about the people Pillars encountered and worked with, from circus performers who took classes from him at the Ringling School of Art in Sarasota, to competitors vying for the same commissions.
1: There is sex and violence, attempted murder, insurance fraud. There are just amazing uh, little anecdotes on the side that make this a very colorful story. But it all comes back to Pillars uh, and His Life, which is a double play on the word life, his sculpture. He lived through the great historical events from that very important period, from the mid 1890s to the middle of the depression. He finally passed away in 1937. Interestingly enough, the last sculpture he did was placed on a base that was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. So, you know, here we go from a man whose story is unknown to all of a sudden a man whose story is so vibrant that lets a storyteller like me and a historian get to tell uh, so many of the other stories that he was involved with. He was involved in the great fire of 1901 in Jacksonville, the third largest city fire in the United States. He had to flee for his life and jumped in the river as his studio burned down in the middle of this great fire. And he also was in the Great Depression and uh, all the hardships and, and difficulties he had there. He was in the 1920s during Florida's boom years and got to celebrate that. When he lived in St. Augustine for 10 years in the 1920s, he built one of Uh, St. Augustine's most well-known landmarks, now known as the Pink Castle, uh, as his own home and studio. is still there today. So uh, the the parts of our history and the different parts of Florida that he touched are still very much uh, with us today. And yet all these layers of history that he was involved in have been uncovered until now.
0: Wayne W. Wood is author of the book Life, The Untold Story of Charles Adrian Pillars, published by the Jacksonville Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. Ben, Florida was very active in World War II and that's reflected in propaganda posters that were displayed around the state in support of the war. Yeah, that's right, Ben.
2: I think when we think about the war, we, we generally think about the men and women who were really engaged in combat throughout the world and even those who were training, uh, many of, of whom were here in Florida. But it's easy to forget the Second World War really was a total war. It involved the entire society at all levels. You know, folks were involved not only in manufacture of machines and airplanes and ammunition and things like that, but the government was also very conscious of the fact that a public had to really continue to support this type of war in order to be successful. We really had to be all in, so to speak. And these posters are a fascinating illustration of the federal government's efforts to maintain and and to bolster that, not enthusiasm, but but a a support, at least of an ongoing war effort, especially as the war dragged on year after year and, and men and women were dying overseas. We had to kind of keep in mind what people were fighting for. And that's what a lot of these posters really represent.
0: Now, some of these posters supporting America's participation in World War II were created by well-known artists uh, like Norman Rockwell. Yeah, that's right, Ben. In fact, the first one that we're looking at today that I pulled from the
2: Florida Historical Society's collection is one of Norman Rockwell's, it's part of a series called The Four Freedoms. And Rockwell uh, based this on a speech that Roosevelt gave in in 1941. And, And Roosevelt kind of tried to lay out what people were fighting for. Because if you think about it, if you were to ask someone, what does freedom mean? Rockwell really wanted to turn these abstract ideas of freedom into basic images and here we're looking at the freedom of speech and it, it you'll see here it's just a gentleman looks like standing in a small room wearing a jacket you know he looks like kind of a, a blue collar guy but he's standing up in a room and people are looking to listen and he's getting ready to speak so it's it's very basic but it pulls at the emotional heartstrings if you will and that was really the, the point the government wanted these direct emotional appeals. And at the very bottom of this image, we see the words buy war bonds. And that was a big part of, of this effort. They were trying to bolster money to finance the war. Uh, so in order to people to, you know, this time people are coming out of the Great Depression. So there's not a lot of money for a lot of Americans to, to a lot of disposable income. Uh, so it was difficult for folks to, to part with with those funds. But through these types of images, like the one created by uh, Norman Rockwell, you can see how people might kind of open up their wallet. And, and again, they were, they were thinking about the, the folks' that were fighting overseas. But if we look at some other ones, the themes kind of change a little bit. Here we have a uh, an American aviator getting ready to hop into the, the cockpit of his airplane, and you'll see Japanese flags that were painted on the side that denote uh, successful attacks on, on the Japanese. And it simply says, Keep him flying. And at the bottom, again, is buy war bonds. Uh, So that was a major theme, was trying to sell these war bonds. But something a little bit different here, we have an illustration of, uh, it looks like a mother and father and a son, and they're working in a garden. And it says, plant a victory garden. Our food is fighting. This was another big theme, rationing of items. You know, we think about ammunition, and, like I said before, metal and things like that. But but food, uh, we had to feed our troops overseas. So they were encouraging people to plant their own gardens rather than going out and spending money on food, going out to restaurants and things like that. Here's another one with, looks like a someone with a parachute, you know, coming down. It says, where our men are fighting, our food are fighting. Buy wisely, cook carefully, store carefully— and use leftovers. It mm-hmm. seems kind of obvious, but again, think about how difficult it was for for the average American family. You know, rationing was a, a very serious part of American life during the war years. Another interesting one that we have here, it's it's red and white, very bold, and at the top it says, doctors are scarce. It says, be prepared for minor injury or minor illness. Learn first aid and home nursing. So again, rather than taxing your local hospital because a lot of these, these people were fighting in the war effort, uh, it was trying to encourage folks to kind of do it on your own <laughs> if you can. And lastly, this is another reoccurring thing. You know, national security was was a major issue for the government at this time, so they wanted to, to remind Americans of how important it was to conceal, you know, troop movements. If you knew something, you got a letter, say, from, from your son who's fighting overseas. Don't tell people where he is. This one it simply shows a, a group of soldiers who are loading a, onto a ship, And it says if you tell where they're going, they may never get there. Don't talk about troop movements. Again, very simple. They were directly communicating to the American people. And it was all about national security and about rationing and about bolstering the the morale, I guess, of Americans back at home. Hmm.
0: Now, for historians today and, and anyone really, it seems like these posters can offer a unique perspective on the war.
2: Yeah, oh absolutely. You know, again, when we think about the war, we're thinking about the actual fighting and we focus generally on the history of the actual fighting, the the theaters in Europe and, and in the Pacific and Africa and everywhere else. But when we talk about total war, we have to focus on the society as a whole. And through the study at least of these posters, we can understand better uh, what the American people went through. So those who weren't necessarily a part of the, directly a part of, of the military forces, they were part of this greater war effort. And these posters, even though they were ephemeral when they were originally produced, meaning they they were meant to be disposed of, they weren't meant to be kind of long-term symbols of the war, people held on to them. And and the fact that they've survived today, that we keep them in places like our archive, it
0: can, again, help to tell the story story of the war. Great, Ben. Well, these are fascinating posters. And if people would like to see them, they can go to the Web Extra on myfloridahistory.org for this program. Thanks a lot. Sure. Thank you. Ben Biassi is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker has this look at the impact of Gullah Geechee culture in Florida.
3: The Gullah Geechee people have resided in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida for hundreds of years. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He's also a Floridian and a Gullah Geechee descendant. He recently talked to me about the Gullah Geechee in Florida.
4: For those who may not know, Gullah Geechee is basically those who have descended from enslaved Central and West Africans uh, who worked plantations throughout the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor or the Southeastern U.S. This corridor stretches from the North, Wilmington, North Carolina, to the South, St. John's County, Florida, and about 30 miles inland. So Florida's story is largely Unknown or forgotten by many uh, Floridians today. People kind of assume that this culture only applies to coastal Georgia and coastal South Carolina because they've been more effective at promoting their cultural heritage and tourism. But in reality, the plantations extended all throughout this four-state coastal uh, region.
3: Florida's Gullah Geechee history goes way back to a time before statehood. As Ennis Davis explains, the Gullah Geechee arrived in Spanish Florida long before the United States took control of the territory in 1821.
4: Some people may hear, when you think of slavery, some people may think 1619, Jamestown is when the first enslaved entered the country. That's technically inaccurate. Spain was already occupying Florida by that point in time and it already had enslaved here uh, for nearly a century. So Florida story emerged as a place where those enslaved who escaped from Georgia and South Carolina would also go south into Spanish Florida because they were also provided their freedom there. The Gullah who did escape, who came into Florida, they had a choice, essentially. You could um, go to a community like Fort Mose, which was north of St. Augustine, and you could pledge your allegiance to the Spanish. Uh, You would have to join the Spanish military, You'd also have to um, defend St. Augustine from attack, and you'd have to become a Catholic as your religion. Well, if you were enslaved and you would escape the British man's plantations and you got down into Spanish Florida, you probably didn't trust the Spanish no more than you trusted the British. So from that aspect, many went south further into Florida and mixed with Native Americans. So that's where you get the Seminole tribe, the Black Seminole tribe.
3: In the 18th and 19th centuries, enslaved people from rice-growing regions of Africa cultivated rice on plantations in Northeast Florida. Rice continues to be a key ingredient in Geechee dishes, along with seafood, okra, peanuts, peas, and greens. Ennis Davis.
4: Shrimp and grits is really big here. Low country bowls are really big here. Those are dishes that would have been grown, produced on plantations. Um, take shrimp and grits, for example the grits would have been a ration that would have been provided by the plantation to the enslaved. But the enslaved would have tried to substitute and add products or food into that, protein into that to make it a larger meal to feed a larger amount of people. So what do you do? You go down to the creeks and you catch shrimp or you might catch some crab or you might catch some fish. So you get the fish in the grits or the shrimp in the grits. Or you might uh, get that one big pot and, you know, somebody went out and got some crab and some mullet on the plantation. You might have been growing some potatoes, some vegetables on the side. Well, you chop those potatoes up, you throw them in that pot, you put some of that, that shrimp, those crabs, those oysters in that pot, you boil it, and now you've got your low country boil.
3: Gullah Geechee communities can be found along the coast of Florida, particularly in Nassau, Duval, and St. John's counties. Jacksonville is home to the historic Gullah Geechee neighborhoods of La Villa and Brooklyn. Cosmo, located near Jacksonville on the St. John's River, was established as a Gullah Geechee freedman community after the end of the Civil War.
4: Jacksonville was the first city in the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor Commission to expand into a major U.S. city. So today, Jacksonville has the largest concentration of Gullah Geechee descendants in the U.S., and there's about 5 million Gullah Geechee descendants. And Jacksonville's probably holding about two or 300,000 of them.
3: Today, the Gullah Geechee people continue to preserve their distinct arts, language, music, and food ways throughout the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor and beyond. To learn more about Gullah Geechee culture and history, go to GullahGeecheeCorridor.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, join the conversation on Facebook and find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Bendy Biasi and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State, Division of Historical Resources, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.